as human beings. We have a remarkable potential, a remarkable capacity for discovering, for realizing, for living a life that is not confined or limited in the way we may have imagined or experienced our life as being. And yet it's rather easy to imagine that this is somehow not to do with ourselves, this potential, this possibility. It's to do with others. It's sometimes not easy for us to trust, to really deeply and genuinely recognize and trust that we too have within us the capacity for awakening, for freedom. And there's a story I'd like to share with you that speaks to the power of what happens when we begin to perhaps question that limited view. The story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. After many waves of uh, persecution in the, in the Middle Ages and uh, sort of an anti-monastic sentiment that had been developing in the, in the country and secularism becoming more powerful, the, uh, the great monastery, had uh, all of its branch houses had been closed and there were only five monks left in the building. It was the abbot and four others, all of whom were over 70 in age. And it seemed very clear that this was a dying order, a dying monastery. But in the deep woods that surrounded the monastery, there was a a little hut that a rabbi from the nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. And when the rabbi would be in the woods, sometimes the the monks would hear or see his movements in the, on the paths. And on one occasion, as the abbot agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to him to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he knew of something that would help him save the monastery, if he could offer him any advice. So when the abbot arrived at the little hut, the rabbi received him and welcomed him. He said, Oh, how lovely it is to see you. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate. He said, I know how it is. The spirit has gone out of the people. Few people come at all to the synagogue, it seems. And so the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. And they read deep scriptures, parts of the... uh, the books that they honoured and revered. And they quietly spoke of things of the heart. But the time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing to meet with you this day, said the abbot. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me that would help me to save my dying order? 
No, I am sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give you. The only thing I can tell you is that the the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to his monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. He just wept and we read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was rather cryptic. I'm not sure what he meant. He said, the Messiah is one of us. And in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance in the old rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could he have possibly meant one of us monks here at the monastery? I mean, if that's the case, which one? Maybe he probably meant Father Abbot. He has been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everybody knows. He is a man of light. But certainly he couldn't have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times, grumpy and angry. But come to think of it, even though he is a thorn in everybody's sides, Brother Elred is almost always right. Maybe it is Brother Elred. Maybe the brother meant him. Maybe the rabbi meant him. But surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, just a real nobody. I mean, he's almost just not there. But then, somehow, mysteriously, he has a gift of turning up just when he's needed. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, supposing he did. Supposing I am the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? And as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect. On the off chance that one amongst them might be the Messiah. And on the off-off chance that they themselves might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. And because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, so happened that people still came occasionally to visit the monastery, to picnic on its lawn, to walk the paths amongst the trees. And every now and then they even went into the chapel to meditate or pray. And as they did so, without even being aware of it, they started to sense this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks, seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, to pray they began to bring their friends to show them this special place. And their friends brought their friends. And then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. And after a while, one asked if he could join them. And another. And then another. And within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a a vibrant centre of light and spirituality in the realm.
It's a rather lovely story. There's an immense power in that respect when we leave open the sense of possibility of what may be possible for another or for ourselves. And it's so important to ask in our practice and in our journey, do we trust in our own capacity, in our own potentiality, though we may not know even exactly what that might mean? But do we trust that we too can realize the deepest things, can know for ourselves the deepest things that a human being can know? This is a question of spiritual vision. And it's something that we need to give attention to. It's easy to start to think, perhaps particularly after a few days of retreat, things are settling kind of a bit calmer, more comfortable, even sometimes enjoyable. And sort of, oh yeah, this is kind of nice, yeah, I can settle for this. A bit more comfortable in my body and mind, that'll do, thanks. Just take it with me and I'll be on my way. And that would be a tragedy. That would be a real shame. To limit ourselves in that way. In the story of the Buddha, it is told, and he reported, how having spent many years seeking and exploring and practicing in different ways, he sat down under the tree that was to become the tree of his enlightenment, the Bodhi tree. He sat down and he made a commitment to himself. He said, though my blood runs dry. Though my bones turn to dust, I will not move from this seat until I have realized that which can be realized by human endeavor. Until I have understood the deepest truth that can be understood by human endeavor. And there's an immense power expressed in what that utterance communicates. Not just the commitment and the resolve and the courage. Something in my, I feel I've heard, read and spoken those words perhaps dozens of times and still when I say them or read them, it's almost like there's a shiver that runs right down through the core of the body that I will not move until I have realized. There's something powerful and archetypical in that that perhaps speaks to us. Not just of the courage and the resolve but of the trust and the confidence in that capacity, in that possibility, in the immediacy of that, available, accessible and real. And it's said in the story and then the tradition that when the Buddha made that commitment and sat down under the tree in that way, took his seat, that Mara, who in the in the tradition is sometimes manifest as sort of like a, a demonic character who's essentially the personification of greed, of hatred, of delusion, of all the forces of obscuration and obstruction that we encounter in our lives and in our practice. It's said that he arose in that moment and he challenged the Buddha as to his right 
to be sitting there and to make that commitment, to be sitting there on his seat. And really what he was challenging was that faith. Challenging his faith that he could awaken. And the Buddha's response to this challenge of what right have you got to sit there? His response was to reach out. You can see the image of the Buddha behind us. To reach out his right hand and touch the earth. And it said that the earth bore witness by shaking and rumbling. Bore witness to his many lifetimes and many years of practice and commitment through which he had developed and cultivated all the wonderful capacities of the human heart that enabled him to become a self-awakened Buddha. The earth responded, it is said, spoke to him in response and to all that could hear. Really affirming what is possible for us all. And this image of the Buddha touching the earth is a powerful one, a symbol for us all. You can find a, a beautiful image at the at the Bodhi tree in Budgaya in India, the place where two and a half thousand years ago this very event took place. And all the images there you see the sense of the the Buddha or the image of the Buddha reaching out, touching the earth, and that sense of touching something about the simple, humble earth. Nothing fancy or sort of precious about the earth. It's just what it is. Kind of dirty and muddy, but it's really there. It's really solid. And something about that, that the Buddha represents for us. This potentiality. And not just as a potential, but a potentiality that can flower that can be actualized and realized, that we can know for ourselves. But again, we have to ask, do we really let this in, this possibility, this potential? Do we? It's kind of can be interesting or even inspiring to hear about it, but is there any part of yourself that right now has already concluded or believes that's not really about me he's speaking. That's other people. That's the Buddha and those great beings who lived all those years ago when you didn't have to deal with complicated things like our lives seem to be filled with. Have you already concluded that? Perhaps you don't need to. Perhaps you could leave the question open. When we reflect on the story of the rabbi's gift and the questioning that asks, am I the Messiah? Am I the Buddha? Am I the Christ child? Am I true emptiness? Peace or whatever it is that we might find as a languaging that resonates for us, understanding that the languaging is only language. But maybe something resonates in response to it. We talk about awakening, freedom, liberation. Whatever the languaging, or even if there's no language, 
which is equally fine, maybe even better. But there's still that resonance, there's still that vibration within us of possibility. Can we leave that wide open, that sense of possibility? Because until we know truly what and who we are, we have to be careful that we don't buy into and believe the views that limit that possibility. And look and see just where and how such views might arise because there's lots of reason that seems why we might hold them and believe them to be true. Like do we deny, do we say, no, won't be me, won't be me. Because maybe, you know, I've got to fix myself. Look at all this stuff. God. You know, I thought I was reasonably okay before I came on a meditation retreat. And now, you know, what I've, my realisation is just, what a basket case I am. Look at my mind. God, you know. That wasn't the realisation I came here for, but now that I've got it, at least I know I might as well go home and just turn on the telly. You know, that idea that somehow we have to work out all this stuff or fix ourselves. There's a way in which we apply the habit of consumerism and materialism to our inner life and our inner experience. Whereby we think, I've got to get rid of this, get more of that, get some of those. A few more good spiritual qualities, more equanimity, but more concentration would be useful. A bit less of that reactivity and some of that boredom and doubt. Well, that has to go. And once I've sorted all that stuff out, then maybe. But... This fascination with becoming someone better or other than what we already are. This fascination with perfecting ourselves. It's just like rearranging the furniture in a prison cell or possibly redecorating, renovating even, but staying within the same limited confines. So don't try and become perfect or better. As Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah was a great teacher in Thailand in the 20th century and he, uh, he once said, don't try and become a bodhisattva, someone trying to get enlightened. Don't try and become an arahant. Don't even try and become an enlightened one. If you try and become anyone, you will suffer. Because we see that struggle to try and become something. And how we project that somehow as being other than what and where we are. And in the gap, we're disconnected. In the gap, we lose ourselves. We abandon our possible potential. When we're trying to become something else, it's because we haven't quite trusted and believed in where we are and what we are. And so we have this thought, you know, like I've got to work out all this karma. Look at all these things I've done with my life. All these times I've been greedy and angry and annoying and selfish and bloody-minded or whatever else we might list as all the things that we've done. And surely, surely I've got to sort all that out. And it's going to take a long time. It's 
going to take a long time. So once I've done that, maybe. It's like we kind of delay. But, you know, the Buddha, he told the story once of how he was walking. He, he was walking and um, he stood on a, a sharp splinter and it pierced his foot. And he said it was really painful. And he remembered it was from a time when in a previous life, and whether or not you have any sense of previous lives or not, you can take this as metaphor or you can take this as literal. But he said in a previous life, he related, he said he was born as a, as a deer, as a fawn, a baby deer. And he said once, while playing amongst his mother's feet, he distracted and bumped into her and she stood on a sharp splinter and it went into her foot. And caused her this pain. And he said, as a result of that, because I wasn't really taking care of what I was doing, this experience arose for me. In this life. It's very interesting. It's not out of any sense of that was blaming or that was coming out of sort of like you're getting your comeuppance now. Just this is the nature of things. We act and results follow. If we act from blindness or confusion, or negativity, then what comes to us is ultimately something that has the same flavor and taste. And if we see when we act from negativity or from selfishness, it has a contractedness, a tightness. It's not sweet or nourishing to us. And so the fruit of that action is likewise. This is inevitable. When we act from goodness, from kindness, from generosity, from non-selfishness, from compassion... The very flavor of the action itself is sweet, and likewise the result. Although, of course, it doesn't always appear that way. Sometimes it seems that people benefit from harmful actions or appear to not benefit or not be supported by acts of kindness and generosity. And yet we can't see the whole picture, always. Yet the Buddha pointed out very clearly that there is this relationship, and I'm really just touching on it here, not meaning to focus too long upon it. Because what the Buddha in that situation was pointing to was that he was still experiencing the fruit of his karma, fully awakened, enlightened as he was. He was still experiencing the fruit of his karma. It didn't have to wait, or he didn't have to wait for all that to be somehow exhausted before he could be free. And even more powerful, perhaps, is the story of uh, of um, Angulimala. You know, sometimes we think, I've just been too bad. I've done too many bad things in my life. There's no way I could be enlightened. You know, I just don't qualify for that club. And in the story of the Buddha's time and his life, he encountered this uh, character, Angulimala, who had undertaken to... There's different versions of the story. But he'd undertaken to take the lives and the little fingers of a thousand people, a thousand beings, to make a necklace. Anguli Mala, Anguli is finger, Mala is necklace. And it said he wore them around his neck. And having taken 999 lives, he encountered the Buddha and wished to make him the completion of his 1,000-fingered necklace. And there's quite a story to be told there, which really isn't the, the primary point of this talk. But in that encounter, the Buddha 
just walked away from Angulimala. And Angulimala, chasing after him, was unable to catch him. The Buddha, and he called out after the Buddha, Stop! Stop! The Buddha turned and looked to him. He said, Angulimala, I have already stopped. It is you who have not stopped. And he was referring to that flood of karmic action, of unskillful action causing suffering. And Angulimala got it and he stopped. And he actually came to the Buddha for teaching. And in a relatively and remarkably short time, came to some profound and liberating insight, was realized and awakened. And this is someone who'd taken the lives of 999 innocent beings. And, you know, we can probably remember some quite bad things we've done, some quite tragic things that we might regret. But, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that none of us is really in that league. And he could still awaken. Now, it's said that when walking in the villages thereafter, the villagers would throw rotten vegetables and stones at him because they'd recognize this was the guy. But they respected him for his commitment to the spiritual life. But they also didn't really like him. And he still got the fruit, literally, of his karma. But it was no bar to his awakening. So you haven't been too bad or done too many things wrong or made too many mistakes. That is no basis for giving up on your possibility, your potentiality. And we can think, you know, I've got so much stuff to work out. You know, my parents, God, they were so much of a trip, you know. If they'd only just not been who they were, maybe then I wouldn't have to spend all this time sorting myself out. But you know, the Buddha, he had really difficult parents too. They laid this real, don't go, you know, they didn't want him to follow the spiritual life. His father tried to stop him from engaging in spiritual practice. You know, wanted to get him, wanted him to basically get a real job, you know, which was be a king. <laughs> and sure, he had to deal with that too. Well, sometimes we think, again, in other ways, I need to purify myself. It's, just, it's different expressions of the same thinking, really. But just because for each of us it might occur differently, we think somehow I need to purify myself. If I wish to discover that which is pure, pristine and untouched, then surely I need to make myself into that by some kind of action of purification. And again, looking to the Buddha's story, the Buddha spent seven years practicing before his awakening. And in those seven years, much of the time, he was engaged in practices that were about either calming the mind, getting it as quiet and still and calm and pristine as possible. But in doing so, and having done so to the equal depth of the greatest masters of his time, he came to realize that although his mind was calm and clear and pristine, it wasn't free or freed by that. And so he gave that up. And he went on and spent some time subjecting himself to all kinds of torturous ascetic practices that were popular in those days. People would stand on one foot for weeks and months and years. Others would eat no food or live on their hands and knees and all sorts of things. And it's said that he 
This kind of practice of mortifying the flesh. It's like trying to overcome the body and the mind by willpower and force. And it said that at one point he'd eaten so little that he was just living on just one or two grains a day. He said that if he pushed his belly he could feel his spine. He was so emaciated, shriveled and weak. Then he went to relieve himself, which I guess he probably didn't need to do too often. But when he went to relieve himself, he, he fell over and collapsed every time. It was just such an impact on him. And you think, what commitment this guy had to practice with that intensity. And yet what he also realized was that it didn't work. It didn't help. It did not solve this, trying to somehow purify himself in that way. And so... He, he realized that was what was going on. And he committed himself to simply being present, being awake. He remembered a time when as a young boy, he just sat down in the shade of an apple tree watching his father's workmen plowing the field. And he just somehow relaxed into a state of presence and awareness, and mindful engagement, just as we've been practicing here. And he wondered, might not this be the way? to freedom. And so he spoke of this on regular occasion. He said to people, he said, you know, this isn't some you're not you don't have to somehow purify yourself in the way you think. It's a mistake. It's a distraction, apart from being really painful and uncomfortable and unnecessary. And there's a again a classic story where he encountered a Jain monk Sometimes the Jains are used a little bit like the fall guys in the stories of the Buddha's time. And um, I think it's really important before I tell a story about the Jain monks that they're a really beautiful order. I've known someone um, who was a Jain monk for many years and he's a remarkable character. He lives in Devon and he, uh, he once walked from, uh, from India to Moscow to, uh, with no money, no support, except what he found along the way in order to... Uh, raised the uh, issue of uh, the danger of nuclear war in the minds of uh, the governments of Moscow. And then he walked to London and New York. A remarkable guy. And the Jains as a, as a community of uh, immense commitment to non-harming. So careful they are with it, they wear masks over their faces so they don't inhale any beings and cause them harm or distress. So very beautiful. Beautiful t- practitioner, practitioners. But on this occasion, the Buddha encountered a Jain monk And this monk had been standing on one foot for quite some weeks and months, in fact. And he said, oh, venerable sir, reverent, you know, respected sir, what are you engaging in here? And the monk said, I'm purifying my old karma. I'm standing on one foot and these racking, painful feelings that I experience are purifying my karma. So the Buddha asked him, he said, oh, tell me, good sir, do you know how much karma it is you have to purify? And the monk responded, oh, no, actually I don't. He said, so do you know how much you've purified already? And the monk said, well, no, actually I don't. And he said, so the Buddha responded, well, can you tell me then how it is that you'll know when you're finished? And the monk said, I don't know. I don't know. And the Buddha said to him, well, you know, this isn't really the way. You don't know how much you've got. You don't know how much you've done. You don't know when you're going to get finished. You don't know what it'll look like when you have. 
Maybe there's another way. And the sense of realizing or pointing out, and this the Buddha was very, very clear on, that the liberation that we seek, the freedom that is our potential and our birthright, is born of understanding, of wisdom, of transformative seeing. We talk of insight in this tradition, seeing into the nature of things, seeing clearly and deeply in a way that liberates and transforms. And it is this that we seek through our practice, not somehow to purify ourselves, And with this regard, there's a story from the Zen tradition. In fact, there was still Chan. It was in China still at the time of the uh, sixth, or the person who became the sixth Zen ancestor, Hui Ning. Hui Ning was just a uh, simple, unlearned, I guess you would say peasant probably, living in the countryside. But... uh, One day walking in the countryside, he encountered a very wise master. And through that encounter and some teaching that he received, his spiritual ardor was awakened and equally some wisdom and understanding came to him. So he made his way to a monastery, the biggest monastery in the the region, and wished to be taken in, but being just a pure, a a poor, ignorant, sort of country peasant, they put him to work in the kitchen chopping vegetables and such things. And he stayed there for some time. But it so came to pass that the the abbot of that monastery was aged, aged and knew his time was near. And he wasn't sure to whom he should transfer the uh, authority of the uh, robe and bowl of office that um, he held as abbot. And so he decided that he would find his dharma heir through a competition. He said, and he told all the all the monks in the monastery said, all of you must write a poem that expresses your deepest wisdom. And from that poem which expresses the deepest wisdom, I will select its author as my Dharma heir to become the next abbot after I die. And although the abbot was very, very much loved and respected. And the next most senior monk in the monastery, likewise, almost as senior, not quite as old, but very much loved and respected. And all the other monks thought, oh, he is the wisest. He will for sure win. And he went and wrote his poem. He wrote upon the wall of the monastery these words. It said, This body is a Bodhi tree, this mind a mirror bright. Hour by hour we polish them and let no dust alight. And this beautiful image of the the Bodhi tree of one's body, one's life, and the sense of just keeping them clear, pristine, pure. And all the monks saw this and thought, oh, such great wisdom. I better not even bother competing. But Hui Ning although he worked in the kitchen, had heard, because everyone was talking about this competition, and he'd heard about it. And he said, take me to this poem. And he couldn't read, so he said, read me this poem to one of the, um, one of the younger monks. 
And the monk read it to him and he said, hmm, it's good, but could you write this down beside it? And he couldn't write it himself, but he asked the other monk to write it down. He said these words. There is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of mirror bright, since all is void and empty. Where could the dust alight? And one sees in this poem a very different vision. That rather than somehow being engaged with somehow trying to purify oneself or stop all the dust, all the stuff from landing or arising, that it's actually about seeing there's nothing it lands on. Seeing through that appearance, that illusion of ownership in which we imagine the dust somehow belongs to us. The dust that we have to somehow keep wiping. Not that there isn't a place for doing all of that. Of course, perhaps you've guessed who won the competition. Well, you already know since I said he became the sixth Zen ancestor. Of course, when the learned and greatly respected abbot said, this is my heir, this kitchen boy will be my heir, and your next abbot, the other monks didn't like it at all. He had to take the robe and the bowl of office and run. And lived in the hills for many years before he took his rightful seat at the head of that order and um, lineage. So this it's a very deeply rooted sense we have, this idea that somehow we're dealing with the dust. We're dealing with that stuff that somehow seems to be what defiles or makes us impure or somehow covers over the luminescence, the radiance, the brightness and brilliance of our life or of life itself. And so we get into this kind of journey of trying to get somewhere, trying to make something happen. Now, interestingly, when we have the sense that I can't do it. There's one way we need to really address that as a sense of limitation on our potential. It's really important that we become aware of and address that. But at another level, strangely and mysteriously, somewhat paradoxically, there's also a kind of truth in it. Because we can't do it. It's not something that we do. Awakening is not somewhere we go. Enlightened is not something we become. Anything we enter, anywhere we go, anything we become, having entered it, we can leave. Having gone there, we can depart. Having become it, we can and then will become something else. Awakening is not the culmination of a process of becoming. It is the end of that process. It is the stepping out of, seeing through and completely abandoning that whole intoxicating, entangling activity. Awakening is the discovery of what always has been, is and always shall be, as it is, 
revealed directly and immediately. Here, where one is, and nowhere else. Now, where one is, and nowhere else. Could it, or will it, ever be found? So let go of trying to get somewhere, or become someone, or worrying that what you've become, or where you've got to, isn't the right place, or the right person. Because it's not about that in the end. Sure, there's a place and a value for working on all of that. There's healing and growth and development that comes out of that. That's wonderful, that's beautiful, that's important. That supports many good things. But that is not somehow a precondition for awakening. The bondage, the limitation and the suffering that we experience is born out of blindness, out of not seeing. The word the Buddha used was avidya. Vid is the same root in the, you know, the Indo-European language are all related together. Vid is the, to see, like as in video. Avid, not see. Avidya, not seeing. Sometimes it's translated as ignorance, which is kind of pejorative. It's like, stupid. Isn't it? We think ignorance. Yeah, ignorance is the cause of it. And boy, am I ignorant. Cause of all my suffering. It must be my fault. No. Blindness. Not seeing. Because we haven't known how to look. Haven't been shown what can be seen. So when we look, but we're not imagining that we're looking for something else or other than what is right here. If we could trust, if you could really allow yourself to trust that what you are looking for is right here. Couldn't be anywhere else. Would be no use to you if it wasn't here. If it was something to be found, it would be something you could lose. What use would that be? What these teachings are pointing to is as, is closer to you and more familiar than your very own thoughts. And when you stop when we stop looking outside of what we call ourself, without conceiving it to be somehow a definition of who we are, but looking directly and immediately into our experience as it is, abandon our history, abandon all that came before and forget about what's yet to come because everything that ultimately matters is here. And from that, orientation from that ground of establishment we can see all that is to be seen there is nothing wrong with our capacity for seeing except that perhaps we imagine we've already seen what's right here 
And when we stop looking elsewhere to something else or to the time when we will be someone else, what we see is that this very seeing and seeking that is here, that calls us, that moves within us, that touches us so deeply, this yearning and looking to know, to discover, to realize, to awaken, that the movement of this, the seeking, it is that which we seek, which is seeking. That which we're looking for, which is looking. And in realizing this, it simply dissolves back into itself. And that movement is gone. Although nothing, in fact, has changed. Nothing, in fact, has changed. And yet the, the looking for has gone because realizing what is sought after is what is. What is seeking is what is. There is nowhere else to go or need to go anywhere else. And so we come to rest where we are. Always have been. Always will be. Rumi put it like this. I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. We're knocking from the inside.
finish with a poem that came to me many years ago entitled Seeing the Mirror If you think it is your face that you see in the mirror consider this is it there now? When you're born into a world made of glass, it is easy to get caught up in reflections and cut by the edges, spending your life seeking for the face you had before you were born. But when you look with your heart, you don't need a mirror to see your own true face. And when you can look into the mirror, neither deceived by the reflection nor distracted by the images, then there is just seeing your own true face. May we all come to know this, to trust our potential for awakening and to realize it, make it real and live it for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings.